So happy Lord's Day. I'm Joel, and if you're joining us online, I'm so glad you're able to join us here today. We are concluding the book of Esther. So I invite you to turn to Esther chapter 9. Now at Heart City, we generally preach through entire books from start to end. That keeps me from cherry picking or choosing my hobby horses. It also keeps me from skipping hard texts like Esther 9. You see, preaching whole books was actually a practice of the early church and it was recaptured by during the Reformation by men who knew it took a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. A whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Our story began in a glorious garden, overflowing with all kinds of wonderful things. But then what happened? What? One woman's disobedience, everything got ruined in a moment. The relationship between men and women, banishment came next. What was humanity's hope? You might think the sending of the law as a guide would set folks right. But it was seen soon that the law was powerless to change human hearts, powerless to give life. In fact, what we found was the law could only condemn men to death, only could condemn God's people to death. We are but unprofitable servants. The story gets worse as we read on. Enemies seek to annihilate God's people. <laughs> Is there any hope? Yes. Just as one woman had begun this chain of events, the hope of salvation would come through another woman, a favored woman. This woman would be the catalyst for salvation for God's people. Hope comes when a cursed man is hanged on a tree for all to see. Hope comes as a former dead man is raised up to the right hand of the throne. Hope comes as a new word is suddenly spread abroad throughout the streets and multitudes hear this message, turn from idolatry and begin to identify with God's people. Why? Because they know judgment day is coming. Now some of you are thinking, thank you Joel for a wonderful summary of your Bible from beginning to end. Others of you are thinking, Thank you, Joel, for a quick review of Esther all the way up to chapter 9. And some of you are connecting the two and saying, Wow, Esther is a microcosm of the whole Bible. The story of Esther actually parallels the redemptive story in the Bible. And still others of you are thinking, Enough intro, Joel. Let's get into God's Word. So let's do that, but let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us here, that you've gathered us together for such a time as this. We ask and pray, will you give us light bulb moments by the power of your spirit? Help us to see Jesus. And Lord, we love you. May we leave here loving you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Esther chapter 9. Now hear the word of our God. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. <clears throat> all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. 
the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Delphon, and Esbatha, and Paratha, and Adaliah, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vaishzatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Let's stop. Now you may be wondering why we stopped because we still have a ways to go. Or maybe some of you are thinking poor Joel had to catch his breath after running through Haman's son's names. <laughs> yeah, me reading that list was kind of like watching a runner do the 110 high hurdles, right? I was also concerned I was going to trip over one and fall flat. Uh, well, I made it. Actually, the reason is we're going to cover a lot of ground, and I want to divide that up into three sections, and I'm going to draw a few profitable points I think God gave me. And there's going to be a lot I don't cover, so I'm going to encourage you to revisit this for your homework. Spending time in your Bible and inviting the Spirit to help you will bring about the renewing of your mind. And I'll continue to encourage you Sunday after Sunday to be in your Bibles. Don't let your pastor know your Bible for you. And as God opens your eyes to see wonderful things, you get to return the favor. Please come to me and tell me what God has showed you to encourage me as well. Our first section we're going to call Fighting in Persia. Fighting in Persia. Now we know from our last study, Haman the horrible is dead, gone. But the Jews still remain in dire straits. His Holocaust edict is of the law of the Medes and Persians. It cannot be revoked. All Esther and Mordecai could do in chapter 8 last week was write up a second edict, saying the Jews could do the same to their enemies that their enemies were going to do to them. So that's where we left off. These two edicts set to square off on the 13th day of Adar. And may the best edict win. Are you ready to rumble? Here we go, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. What? Thanks a lot, author. For six chapters, we have been waiting for this day. When the forces of good and evil are set to duke it out, right? And it's like he erased the big game we wanted to record and just gives us the final score. 
All you need to know is that a whole lot of people in Vegas got this one all wrong. The reverse occurred. Yet again, in a story with so many great reversals. So why does the author get to the point so quickly? For you and me, friends. He wants to allow no doubt, no doubt in your heart or my heart, that God's people will win and our enemies will be destroyed. Look at us. We may be weak, small, insignificant in the eyes of the world. Our enemies may seem strong, big, influential, have all the power. But we must never lose heart about our future. We win in the end because our God will go before us, as we've been talking about, because Almighty God is with us. We can't lose. And our enemies will be slaughtered. In the end, as Revelation 19 teaches, judgment day is coming. Esther 9 is a picture of that. I know some of us here may struggle with the idea of enemies being slaughtered especially when God's people are the agents. How do you like verse 5? The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Does that make you cringe a little bit? Well, let's aggravate our, moral, our modern moral sensibilities a little bit more. The king hears about the carnage in verse 11, and he's really impressed. He says, 500 dead in the capital alone? Jolly good news. I bet the body count in the whole kingdom must be much greater. Shockingly, Esther isn't even impressed with this. She goes Bloody Mary on us. She wants another day of slaughter. Verse 13. If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman, they're already dead, be hanged on the gallows. <clears throat> what's going on here Esther seems bloodthirsty I had a very different picture of Esther all the way to this point didn't you what about loving our enemies Esther all we are saying is give peace a chance maybe we should just cut chapter 9 out of our Bibles that's what some people do today there can be no holy war where the good guys act like the bad guys this violates our moral our modern moral sensibilities doesn't it but here's the thing beloved there are wicked people in this world people who so hate God that they have become like beasts unthinking beasts Psalm 73 read it later there are at least 75,000 people here who on, when Haman's edict went out, they circled their calendar. They called their friends and said, guess what, friend? We have state-sanctioned authority to go out and exterminate all those Jews we hate. Men, women, boys, girls, and children. Yes, we can't wait. It's going to be great. We get it all wrong if we don't see how much wicked people in this world want to do wickedness. There are evil ones all around who are agents of Satan. Why? Because it began back in Genesis 3. After mankind sided with the devil, grasping for what wasn't theirs, and they took the devil's side at that moment. And then God spoke a promise in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent who would be at enmity with each other going forward in human history. Do you realize what this means? 
mankind, all mankind is either in the hands, tools in the hands of Satan or tools in the hands of God Almighty, whether they're aware of it or not. War, cosmic in scope, bigger than this, is being played out actually here on the human battlefield. That's what's going on. But the modern mindset wants to forget history and, oh, we're past that. The best we'll ever know, friends, is times when we're not shooting at each other. And we can thank God for those times, but as Rex said so well, that is not peace. It's prideful to say that. It is. Or that even that peace on earth can be achieved because that cannot come until Jesus returns. Until then, Christians will be martyred as some are being martyred today, I guarantee you, in some countries. And persecution of the Jews? <laughs> even post-Holocaust, since 1948 and their establishment, in just over 70 years, they've had seven wars and multiple conflicts. We cannot pretend that wickedness in our world is not real. There's actually a foreign comedy come out about 20 years ago about a Jewish family in Italy during the Holocaust. It's called Life is Beautiful. I think Rex has seen it. He's nodding his head. It celebrates how we like to play games in order to avoid the hard truths. There's a Jewish family in Italy, and there's this little boy. There's a scene with a little boy with his father, and he sees a shop sign that says, No Jews or dogs allowed. So he goes up to his father, and he says, Hey, why aren't Jews or dogs allowed to go in that place? So Guido, his father, makes up a story to shield his son from the hard truth about evil. He says this, they just don't want Jews or dogs to go in. Everybody does what they want to. There's a hardware store there. They don't let Spanish people or horses go into his store. Further ahead, there's a drug store. Yesterday, I was with a Chinese friend who had a kangaroo. I said, may we? No, we don't want Chinese or kangaroos here. We don't like them. What can I tell you? Later... They end up on a train ride. The father's like, we're just lucky enough just to get in. There's only standing room only. Then they head to the concentration camp. And the father says, it's all a game. And whoever wins the game at the end gets a real tank. But then comes that moment where he finds his little boy hiding in the rafters. And he's discovered the real truth. This sullen boy says, Dad, they make buttons and soap out of us. What are you saying, Father says. A man was crying. He said they make buttons and soap out of us. And his dad laughs it off. And he says, you fell for that. I thought you were a sharp boy, cunning, intelligent. Buttons and soap out of people. That'll be the day. You believe that. Ha, ha, ha. Just imagine tomorrow morning I'll wash my hands with Bart and Maleo, a good scrub, and then I'll button up with Francesco. Let me ask you this question. What would have happened to the Jews in Esther 9 if they acted like Guido? Yes, it was a gruesome day with nearly 80,000 slaughtered. And friends, we're not so far removed from these horrors. I give praise to God that the Allies, including America, decided to put an end to what they were doing in Germany to the Jews. I actually remember meeting a Holocaust survivor when elementary school as a child. Came to my school, she showed me her number tattooed on her arm. This continues today. Don't think they're not wanting to do this. There are wicked people in our world. No different than the Old Testament times. From Exodus 1 all the way to Esther 9, 
Israel's entire history is filled with bloodshed. And the emphasis on bloodshed is certainly here in chapter 9, but I want you to see the emphasis on something else equally emphasized three times. Verse 10, 15, and 16. We hear again and again, they laid no hands on the plunder. That's what makes this war holy war. They are killing to survive, not because they want to profit from their enemies. This is actually a remarkable reversal of the Jews' own past as they now refrain from taking. Here at the end of Old Testament history, God's people are actually turning from what stumbled them earlier. Achan, remember him? What about Saul, Mordecai's ancestor, which is emphasized here in Esther? He had been commanded to destroy the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people, along with their plunder. But Saul disobeyed. He spared Agag, which is why this story happens now, and he pounced on the plunder. And later, what happens to Saul? He's killed by his enemies, and his body, along with his sons, would be hung on display for their sins. But Mordecai does different. The son of Saul, the son of Kish, sees the Jews reverse the sins of their parents that birthed this whole mess, and yet another reversal. Now their enemies are the ones whose bodies are hung on display. Do you see? It's gruesome, but this is a fair warning to those who serve Satan. I was actually watching an interview with Corey Ten Boom last week. Do you remember her? Yeah, her family hid the Jews, and then they ended up in a concentration camp. Her sister Betsy died horribly. An interviewer asked her if she believed the demonic was behind her captors' activities. Here's what she said. Yes, of course. They were quite in the power of the devil, which showed in their actions in there and what they said, and there they also hated God and Jesus. They were agents of Satan. And they chose to do the cruelest things, not just to the Jews, but to Christians also. So here's my question for you. Do you think that Satan has decided to give up? Well, Joel, what are we to do? There's another word repeated three times here. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities. And you find the word gathered in verse 15 and also in verse 16. This is so important. Let me ask you, what, if, what would have happened if all the Jews decided to go about it on their own, each individually? They'd have been slaughtered. You're right, Elizabeth. Now, aren't you so happy that you chose to gather with God's people here this morning? This is why we gather. Insofar as we're able, barring sickness or emergency, we gather every week. And it rejoices my heart because when we gather here, we are a mighty force. We are a mighty force. We choose we're not going to do it alone. <laughs> my highlight last Sunday, actually, I'll confess, was watching one of my heroes walk into church. It was raining cats and dogs. No, I take it back. It was worse. It was raining cats and cats outside. You remember it last week? Coming down in downpour. And this dear soul, coat over her head, was not going to let it stop her from getting here to church. She walked all the way. Because she knew it was that important to gather with God's people. I'm inspired by that. I'm not saying if you don't come to church, and maybe you're watching online, I'm not saying if you don't come to church, you're not saved. But I am saying you may not survive. And the loved ones you care about may not survive. I'm being very serious because I love you. If you think you're able to take care of yourself on your own as a solo Christian, huh, you won't. You won't do well. You need to meet us here at base camp once a week. 
Now you may say, Joel, I can be a happy, healthy Christian all on my own. I've been doing it for years. So, friend, that's a very modern Western notion based on your feelings. <laughs> and it also goes, going solo contradicts Scripture and it contradicts the reality of our world, as I hope I've expressed. There may not be a judgment day on our calendars that we've seen the governments enacted where enemies are going to pick up physical weapons against us, but our battle has never been against flesh and blood ultimately. Our enemy is just as hard at work today picking off people, our loved ones, which is why we come here once a week to pick up the sword of the Spirit, why we gather together to take nourishment, rations for our battle from our Lord Jesus handed to us, why we gather together to pray for the salvation of lost souls. And let me tell you, the power of prayer when we come together, it changes things. And as an aside, if you happen to notice someone missing, and I know some people missing this morning, do like a good soldier would do. Reach out to them and ask, hey, are you all right? Have you been hit? Are you still in the fight? Because we're in this together at Heart City Church. We have to be in it together. And by the way, I'm excited how I see God positioning us. I've been seeing so much in just the last six, seven months. Because when people commit to do this, to gathering together to battle against the powers of darkness, friends, we can expect revival. Revival, which is reversal of all the plans of the forces of the evil one out there. That's what we'll do. Revival is the reversal of everything the enemy is trying to do. So let's continue to gather together to encourage each other. Do you want to have reason to celebrate in our day? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. So let's look at our next point, the Feast of Purim. Reason to celebrate. Verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for feasting and gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and it has cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because all of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to all who joined them, that without fail they should keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. 
So I have just quick four quick R's for this section, the first being rest and the second being relief. Feasting and gladness came, come. Why? Because the Jews found rest from their enemies, verses 17 and 18. And as a result of this rest, they then provide relief to the poor. Friends, this is one of the most basic principles of Christianity. When we celebrate, we invite the poor. That is because when Jesus won the victory, it was for our sake, the poor and the perishing. Every Hebrew celebration was pointing forward to the rest and relief that would come only in Jesus. You see, at the cross, that, the cross was actually, that was the greater holy war waged upon the Son of God, which led to the greater holy day, Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the ultimate reversal. And now, because Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, has begun a new creation, you and I, we have an eternal inheritance, which means we want to help the poor people. And I'm not just talking physically poor. I'm talking about people who do not have Jesus. We help the poor to see heaven. That is our responsibility. And it may be a poor person. Think about it. Why would you buy meals for a homeless person? If they ask you, why did you buy this for me? Just tell them, I want you to get a glimpse of heaven. Because in heaven, there'll be no poor people, no hungry people. That's what it's about. Our next R is to recognize. Recognize who is behind the scenes, working all things for good. This holiday is named Purim because Haman casts lots, like casting dice. It's pure, is Purim in the plural. Haman essentially tossed dice to determine D-Day. What was the best day? What's the lucky day? Haman obviously didn't believe Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What that means is you and I first, we recognize there is no such thing as luck, no such thing as chance. If you read your horoscope, you're doing a Haman thing. You're denying providence. That's what Romans 8.28 has been teaching us. So let's say it all together one more time. That's, it's in your bulletin if you don't have it memorized. Let us say together, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The big idea in Esther is that we see and we celebrate God's providence, God's purposeful sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is in complete control over every square inch of this cosmos. And he is purposeful, guiding every creature and every action to the end that is for our good and for his glory. Even though his hand is often unseen. That actually helps me with verse 25. Look at verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised, speaking of Haman, against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. This verse irritated me when I was reading it because it isn't true. It makes Ahasuerus out to be the hero, right? But he was clueless about the plot to kill the Jews and his own wife even agreed to it. And then he left figuring out a solution to Esther and Mordecai. Doesn't that grate you? This was God the whole time behind the scenes. So how do you like Ahasuerus getting credit for the victory? Ever had somebody get credit for something they don't deserve? Doesn't that irk you? Friends, we need to remember our theme for the beginning of Esther, 
God is present even when he seems most absent. And he's absent in this verse, isn't he? <laughs> God is actually not even mentioned one time in 10 chapters. Yet you see in the amazing chain of coincidences that God is the driving force behind everything. Ahasuerus gets the glory here, but we know who deserves credit, don't we? It made me think of Rick Hoyt. He actually died just a few months ago, not long after his father, Dick. Has anybody heard of Team Hoyt? Team Hoyt? Rex is shaking his head. Yeah, go YouTube Team Hoyt later on and then prepare to cry a little bit, okay? Dick's son, Rick, about I think in the 60s, was he, Rick was born with um, cerebral palsy and spastic quadriplegia. He could never run or walk because his umbilical cord made him oxygen-deprived at birth. But Dick and his wife refused to put him in an institution. They treat him just like any other child, work with him, even though, I mean, he couldn't do anything. After time, Rick learned how to communicate with a computer, and he asked his dad one day if they could compete. They could run in a charity race, road race. So Dick ran the race, pushing his son, or Dick ran the race with Rick in the wheelchair ahead of him. Came next to last, but they got the whole five miles. And after the race, Rick said this to his dad, when I run, it feels like my disability disappears. This began one of the greatest father-son love stories of all time. Dick said, I decided to loan my son my arms and my legs so that he could compete. And compete Rick did. Completing over 1,000 races with his dad, including triathlons. Sometimes Rick was in a boat being pulled by his dad as he's swimming. Sometimes he's sitting in a seat in front of a bicycle. Most of the time, his dad is just straining away as he pushes him in his special racing wheelchair. Rick's smiling every time. Dick, the father, would climb mountains and run to the end of the earth to give his son the life that, his, that transcended his physical limitations. There's this amazing scene at the end of the Kona Ironman. The crowds are all lined up. They're all cheering as they come down that last stretch. And you see Rick there, I just smile and his arm raised in triumph as the people just pour water on him. They're all celebrating and he's getting all the credit. And we love that. In fact, I never even looked at his dad behind us. I was watching the video the first time. Hmm. Friends, that's your story. That's your story. Because you've been deprived of God's grace, of the glory that got denied when it got taken away. We have all been impacted by sin so we're all crippled and yet God in our lives he's pushing us along the way by the way he was pushing you last week when you walked to church Elizabeth that was who behind you every step of the way that's our father God and we get to raise our arms and get the victory right cheers even though we know it was him the whole time so we need to recognize him in every victory that we have recognize our God Purim was not the victory of the king, of Esther or Mordecai. Even though God isn't mentioned, God is the reason for the deliverance. So lastly, we need to remember, verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. Actually, this is the purpose of this book we read right here, that the Jews would never forget to celebrate Purim. And Jews to the present day still celebrate it. And it's really something they all dress up in costumes they eat these triangle cookies called Haman's ears. I hear the chocolate ones are the best. And they read the story of Esther. And every time Haman's name is about to be read, they have these noisemakers, and so they just blot his name out again and again. They've done it for over 2,500 years. 
But though many Jews remember this deliverance, this was not the great deliverance. No, the great deliverance was the coming of Jesus, which we get a picture of as we come to the close of our time in Persia, where we go from war to peace, our last section. Verse 29, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season. Had Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in, the, in, in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. Here's how Israel's Old Testament history ends. And friends, it's never been better for the people of God. They may not be in the promised land, but their enemies have been defeated. Esther and Mordecai, the representatives, are in power. And words of peace and truth go out, plus instructions to practice Purim, to celebrate the great reversal. It's almost heaven, isn't it? Oh, no, it's not. King Ahasuerus is still on the throne, uh, and he's uh, missing Haman's money. I won't start a poem there, sorry. Should 5% appear too small? <laughs> Be thankful. I won't take it all. I'll go to the Beatles. Because Persians everywhere are feeling Harrison's tax man now. Well, Joel, we got Mordecai. He actually reminds us of the beginning. Joseph, there, right? Second in power. He was only second to Pharaoh. He also represented the people. This might give Jews reason to smile, right? On the surface, things look good. But if you know your history, this is unsettling. <coughs> things were good when Joseph was in power. What happened after he died? Will the next Persian king remember Mordecai and Esther? Actually, chapter 10 opens as a bummer. The author is saying, don't get too comfortable. The victory is nice, but God's people still have an uncertain future in this world. The victory was nice, yes. But their homeland is still enemy-occupied, and God is still silent and will be for centuries. But friends, the last words in the last Old Testament history book point us forward to our hope. The last words, Mordecai seeks the welfare of his people and spoke peace, the word here is shalom, to all his people. Our hope is not just in deliverance from our enemies. Our hope is in a person, a shalom speaker. The Hebrew word shalom means peace, but it means far more. It means wholeness, means harmony, means completeness, it means health, it means soundness, both in body and in mind. Anybody here want to experience that sort of peace? Oh, I groan, I groan. Well, I'll tell you how we can't get it. We can't get that sort of peace by 
imagining there's no heaven. Imagine no religion. Imagine all the people living lives in peace. Because Lenin was a dreamer. And sadly, he's not the only one. Now, maybe speaking to someone this morning, maybe someone online. And I plead that you listen as we close the book of Esther. Some of us have a war going on inside right now. You have no peace right in here. And that's why we don't have any peace out there, whether you're looking at Ukraine, whether you're looking at the Middle East, whether you're looking at the Congress, whether you're looking at the streets of Elkhart. The problem of no peace out there is because we have no peace in here. Are we willing to own that we're at war inside? Mordecai is pointing us to our problem solver, the one who came to the right hand of power, namely Jesus Christ, who made peace between God and men by the cross where he shed his blood. By the way, the Jews and us were not saved because we're so righteous. No. Actually, the Jews were saved because the promised one, the promised righteous one would be born of them. And Rex read that passage from Ephesians 2 that says, Jesus is preaching peace to those who are far off and those who are near. I'm just the messenger for Jesus. So I ask you, have you received that peace? that ends the war inside. That shalom that brings about new life and resurrection certainty. You'll never have peace until you have peace with God that can only come through Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, you have a little bit of that peace right now. It's already yours. Even if you're subjectively struggling right now, trying to understand what God is doing with things coming your way, the hard things you're facing. This is a call for you to trust in God's providence. His unseen hand is at work. And trust in Christ, who is our only hope in both life and in death. And if you're feeling this and hearing me and saying, Joel, I'm in need of a great reversal, then I'm happy to tell you that it's already started to happen. The peace comes the moment you start to feel your need. So let's close by going to Father God and inviting Jesus to bring to completion what he's already started. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to bless you, first and foremost, for sending the Lord Jesus, who is the true and better king, and who reigns over all. And we do confess that we have been your enemies, turned from you, our God and creator, to live selfishly in shameful sinfulness, in league with the devil. Forgive us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for making peace between us and God by paying the penalty for all our sins and dealing with all our shame. And we marvel that though you had to die to save us, you were also glad to die to save us. And that you still extend your arms in love today, just as you did when you extended them on the hard wood of the cross. We run into your embrace. We receive that peace that our souls so crave and that only you can give. And Father, please give your Holy Spirit so that we might continue to die to the old ways and live under the new ways, a complete reversal to the praise of your grace. And we rejoice that we no longer live as slaves to the serpent, but now we look forward to that day when you will crush the serpent's head once and for all. Until then, give us grace to cling to your promise, to press on as we cling to Jesus alone, that all the honor and glory might be his, both now and forever. Amen.